Turn with me. We're going to continue in our walk through Colossians. And y'all, um, we've been here for a hot minute already, and we are about to finish chapter one. Y'all excited? Like, we're, we're like cruising right through, baby. We're going to be in verse 19. We're going to start in verse 19. And as you're turning there, um, I want to share with you a few of the news highlights I saw this week. Let me, let me share a couple of news headlines. <clears throat> so this week, the UN released a report that noted roughly 258 million people across 58 countries are experiencing an acute hunger crisis, and many of those are on the brink of starvation. That's the highest number ever recorded in that report. The Council on Foreign Relations released a report that there are 27 ongoing wars and conflicts in our world right now impacting over 3 billion people on our planet. Nearly 3.2 billion people live in those regions with ongoing conflicts and wars. The news like that went on and on this week. There's nearly 46.3 million people in the U.S. that are suffering from a substance abuse disorder, an addiction. Nearly 25% of all adults in the U.S. are experiencing or have experienced mental illness in the last year. Socially, if you look in the news, people are disconnecting more and more. Socially, people are not engaging one another nearly as readily as workplaces were dispersed and people worked from home. Our primary means of building friendships and relationships was scattered, and that leads to a lot of that depression, too. The news headlines go on and on and on. And, and can I be honest? Like, our world feels bleak these days, doesn't it? Like, and you don't even have to go to the news to find it out. We experience it in our own homes and our lives. The brokenness and the pain and the suffering that occur at every corner of our world. They're all too real, and we feel them so real so often. And so that begs the question, is there any hope? Is there any hope in all of the pain and the brokenness of our world that we acknowledge? And the answer from our text today is a resounding yes. There is hope, and that hope is found in the gospel of Jesus. See, God is on a mission of reconciliation in this world, and there's one name that stands at the center of his redemptive plan, and that name is Jesus Christ. And so what we come to this morning in our text is we just walk through the book of Colossians. Here's Paul's main idea, that Christ is supreme in salvation. All things find their reconciliation in him. Let's read our text this morning. Start with me in verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul writes this, For in him, the him is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me as we dive into our text? 
Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that not all passages are easy, but we come to texts where Christ is found supreme in salvation, Lord. And even though it starts out sounding so bleak, God, your text shows us the glorious joy that is available to us in reconciliation through Christ. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me this morning. Let your text impact us and let each of us walk out of here having encountered the joy and the grace and the peace that come from Christ. Let us walk out of here not the same, but changed by your very word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we dive into Paul's text, there are three things that I want to get out of this as we build the argument, as Paul builds the argument, that Christ is supreme in salvation. And the first thing that we see in Paul's argument is that Jesus stands alone at the center of God's redemptive plan. He stands alone at the center of it. Look back at the text with me in, in verse 19 and 20. Paul says this, For in him, in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Underline that word, all. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Again, underline that word, all. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, when, when Paul starts out this, this section of the text, he starts out with the word for. And for is a connecting word. And what that does is it connects this part of the text to everything Paul said before it. So I want to recap a little bit what we talked about last week. And I don't want to belabor it because if you were here, uh, you've already heard a lot of what we walked through. But Paul's argument last week that we read was Christ is supreme in creation. He is over all creation and stands over all creation as honored above all of creation. Everything points to him. And Paul made the argument Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God dwelled in Jesus. So if you saw Jesus, you encountered God. And then he he makes the argument that everything that exists in the spiritual realm and in, in the heavens was created through Christ. Everything that exists on this earth was created through him. And then he says that he sustains everything. He didn't just create it and let it go, but Jesus sustains all of creation by his word and his might. And he finished off by saying, Jesus is the head of the church. Um, And so when he makes this argument, he comes in and he says, now for, because of everything that you saw previously, everything that I just wrote you, that Christ is supreme, look at this. Verse 19, he says, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was not part God. It wasn't just a little slice of God that inhabited Jesus. Jesus was not only partly divine. What Paul says is Jesus embodied the fullness of the nature of the Godhead. 100% of the nature and the character of God dwelled in Christ. So again, if you saw Christ, then you've encountered the living God who is invisible. Jesus took what was invisible and made it visible. He took what was intangible and made it real and touchable and knowable. And he says this, if you read the Gospel of John, you've you've heard this before. When Philip approaches Jesus, Jesus just taught, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And you all remember how Jesus responded? Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is Lord. That's the argument that Paul is making. The fullness of God, Jesus is Lord. That's the argument he made last week, too. He, he makes the argument that Jesus created everything. Everything that exists exists only because of the creative impetus of Jesus. He made it all. He spoke and creation. And because he created it all, Jesus is Lord of it all. But look here again in our text this morning, what, what Paul says. He says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is Lord. He's fully God. And then through him to what? Reconcile. By including that word reconcile, it brings an implication to our text. You see, Jesus is the rightful Lord over everything, but if things need to be reconciled, that means his lordship was disrupted. Y'all, it's like, I'm sure every one of you, all you moms in here, I'm sure you raised perfect kids. Like, your kids got along, they're absolute angels, but I gotta be honest, like, y'all, my kids, like, they fight once in a while. The pastor's kids fight. And so once in a while, I got to take these two warring parties and reconcile them back together. And so that's what Paul is saying here is there is a disruption in the harmony of relationship in which Jesus is Lord and we as created beings are supposed to respond to him. That's been disrupted and reconciliation is needed. And what was it that disrupted Jesus' right as Lord over all of earth? The Sunday school answer is what? Sin. I heard somebody whisper it. I'll take a whisper. Sin disrupted Jesus' rightful place as Lord over all creation. It disrupted our relationship with him. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned at the first, they introduced sin into all of creation, and it infected everything. And our relationship with God was broken, and we were no longer, as God created us to be, we were no longer the image bearers that God created us to be. And, and we no longer subscribed to his lordship because we became rebels because of that first sin. And so Jesus' lordship was disrupted by sin. But you see, sin didn't only disrupt our relationship with God. Sin disrupted and sin broke all of creation. And so when we read news articles about people across this world starving, sin is the root cause of that brokenness. When we see mental health and mental disease taking root in people's lives, sin is the ultimate cause of what has led to that in our world. God didn't design us that way. He designed us to live in perfect relationship with him as Lord and to be perfect image bearers. So the brokenness impacted more than just our relationship with God. It impacted so much more. I'm going to take you really quick to Genesis. Genesis 3.16. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. God said to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You see, after sin was introduced into the world, it broke the relationship between husband and wife that was supposed to be a perfect representation of Jesus and the church and the love exchanged between the two, and that was broken. And so when, when we see that, we see that all domestic violence in our world is the result of the fracture of Jesus' lordship and creation. In Genesis 4.8, we see this. Cain spoke to his Abel brother. If you, if you guys remember Cain and Abel, they were Adam and Eve's children. And Cain tended the fields, and Abel tended the flock, and they both brought worship gifts to the Lord, and, and God honored Abel's because Abel's heart was right before the Lord, and Cain's was not. And so Abel was honored, and Cain was not. And here in Genesis 4, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. We don't have the words, but it was a manipulative, manipulative 
speech because he drew Abel out from the uh, tending the animals into the field where Cain typically worked. And what did he do? He murdered him. See, all manipulation and abuse and hostilities from one man to another and from one woman to another, those were the result of the brokenness of Jesus' lordship. There was a disruption in his lordship over creation, and it, it results in how we treat one another. We see in Genesis 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts and hearts was only evil continually. All evil that is committed in this world ultimately is the result of Jesus' disrupted lordship over creation that was broken at the first, and it's led to all of the brokenness in our world. All things, this is what Paul says, all things, look back at the text, in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, what? All things whether on earth or in heaven, they find their reconciliation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the all between Jesus being all God and able to reconcile all things is inextricable. You can't break that link. Because Jesus is the fullness of God, he embodies all of God, he is able to redeem all things. If he was not all God, he could not redeem all things. But the fullness of God redeems the fullness of creation. It's what we see in Acts chapter 4. And there is salvation in nobody else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is in the business of reconciling all things to God. And I'm not up here preaching a universalism where everybody, no matter what walk of life, gets to be redeemed in the end. There is, there is a submission to Jesus that must take place. But what it's saying is anything that gets redeemed, any part of creation that is redeemed in the end when Christ returns is redeemed only through Christ. And that's people. And that's even... We see in Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. There is a redemption of the physical world to whatever capacity the Lord has planned. But Jesus is the center of it. There is no other pathway around Jesus to get to that reconciliation. He's the center of it all. And how did he do it? Paul says it right here. How did Christ reconcile all things? By making peace. By the blood of his cross. See, by his death, Jesus made peace with rebels in order to reclaim them and reclaim all that they have dominion over. See, in Genesis, God gave dominion over creation to mankind to steward God's creation according to his good and perfect will. And when we fractured our relationship with him, everything that we have dominion over had its relationship with God broken as well. And we see all things find their reconciliation in Christ Jesus by the blood of his cross. The fullness of his saving power is because of the fullness of him as God. We see the second part of Paul's argument is the work of Christ takes hostiles and makes them holy. Look with me at verse 21. 
Paul says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In verses 15 through 18, those are written in the original Greek uh, almost as a hymn, as a song to sing the praises of Jesus' glory. And so Paul moves from singing this hymn about who Jesus is. He's, He's the creator of all things. That's a lofty idea and proclamation about Jesus. He's the image of God. That's a lofty idea about Jesus. He he upholds all things just by the power of his word. That's a lofty idea. And so Paul goes from speaking of the lofty glories of Christ that are so tough to imagine in our minds, and he brings it down so personally, and he goes, and you. He moves from the impersonal glory of Jesus to the very personal, I'm talking to you and you. Let me get personal. We're once alienated, but now you're holy. And he uses a contrasting statement. Look back at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile, we were doing hostile things. And then he, he has now. We were doing hostilities, but God did not respond in like kind. We were alienated, but Christ was going to do something to reconcile that. We were on totally different pages of work. What a contrast. The evil of people set against God, but God doesn't respond in kind. He responds in grace instead. Some of us, I'm concerned, especially if we've been around the Christendom for very long, maybe come with the idea that, man, we were once God neutral, but then we just decided to go to bat for his team. We were, you know what, we were pretty good people. I was a good guy before Jesus. You know, I, I, I donated to Goodwill. I, I would give a dollar to the panhandlers, and I volunteered at the soup kitchen. And, and, you know, I was always the one to bake cookies for the kids' soccer team. I was a pretty decent guy. And you know what, me, have you ever heard somebody say this? I've heard somebody say this just even this, this last week. God and I, we just have an understanding. God doesn't have understandings with people. God has wrath for sin and grace for those who repent. He doesn't have other understandings. There's no God neutrality. Apart from Christ, we're separated and alienated from grace. That's the argument that Paul is making. There is zero God neutrality. Scripture nowhere in any of its language speaks about neutrality with God. It has no such language and no such concept. You're either an enemy or you're reconciled. Those are the two camps. Now see, the the little white lie that you told just so you could get away, you recognize that was an absolute affront to the holiness of God. The fudging on your taxes. You know what? I'm God neutral. I did pretty okay. I just fudged my taxes a little bit. Uncle Sam doesn't need no, no more of my money. I'm just the middle class. That was an offense to God's holiness. The little bit of gossip absolutely rips at the heart of God and is an affront to his holiness. It's an assault on God's character, and it's an assault on who he created you to be. 
So apart from God, there's no neutrality. There's no understandings. There's just death and separation. This is what Paul says. You were alienated from God. It's the language Paul uses because of your sin. You were foreign to anything holy. You were separated from holiness. You were separated because of your hostile minds, which resulted in hostile actions. And all of it came about because you and me, before we had faith in Christ, we set ourselves up as Lord. We rejected the lordship of Christ and said, I get to rule my life my way. That's why I give the little white lie. That's why I fudge the taxes. That's why I can scream at my kids, man, because they just... Man, they get me right here, and it's my right. It's an affront to the holiness of God, and it alienates us from him. See, the thoughts that filled our hearts apart from Christ Jesus, they were all about me as king. And all those things are proof that we were Lord and not King Jesus in our lives. And genuinely, like, I'm not trying to be particularly offensive to anybody in the room. All of you that I know in here, I kind of particularly like you guys. Like, I'm not trying to be offensive. I just have to repeat what's in the text. I don't get to declare my own truth. I have to speak the truth of Scripture. And this is what Scripture declares. The Bible says that each of us at one time was separated from Christ and alienated from God. But the remarkable thing is that God didn't deal in like kind. And you were alienated and hostile and an enemy of God's holiness. But God loved you anyway because he's the one who created you to begin with and God loves all that he creates. And so his love motivated him to act not in like kind but in mercy and grace through Christ Jesus. Y'all, can you imagine? I was thinking about this concept this week. Can you imagine watching a trial? Anybody watch court TV or am I dating myself? Like, is that still a thing? I don't know. Have you ever watched a trial or think about a trial? You know, you got the judge like 10 feet above everybody else on his lofty seat way up there. And imagine looking over and you see at the defense table, the defendant, and he's kind of got them beady little eyes and, and that scraggly beard, and he's got that wiry hair, and the dude just looks guilty, right? Like, you don't even have to hear the trial like, he did it. Then you got the prosecutor over here lobbing, lobbing the evidence at the defendant. He's the murderer. He's the guy. Look, we have the eyewitness testimony. You get the eyewitnesses sitting up on the stand. I watched him do it, and then they got video and pictures. Somebody snapped a Polaroid with him and the knife in his hand and, and over the dead body, and, and then they got all the cell phone data tracking that guy where he was at, and, and they have all of the... Uh, all the evidence just pointing to this guy. He's the guy. He's the guilty one. And then it comes down to closing arguments, and, and the prosecutor's just zipping it up like, I already showed you all the evidence. The guy is guilty. And then the judge, imagine this, the judge in the middle of closing arguments steps down from that lofty chair, and he walks over to the defense table, and he, he takes off his robe, and he places it on the defendant, that robe of righteous justice, and puts it on that murderous defendant. And he kneels down and he unshackles him. And then tenderly, tenderly he says to him, 
I declare you not guilty on account of my blood evidence. And I will pay the price for your sin. I will take the judgment. The one who should render the verdict of guilty, I will take the guilty verdict and mark you clean and free and you can have my righteous robes. That's what Christ did for us. Christ one day will return and judge the sin in this world. He will judge the world. But the judge didn't stay up in his high and lofty chamber but stepped down. He said, I know I'm going to have to judge you one day. So instead, I want to die for you today so that on that day I can declare you righteous. That is the mercy of God. Hallelujah that he doesn't respond to sinners the way we deserve. Jesus loved you just as he found you. I don't know where he found you. I don't know if he found you in a gutter. I don't know if he found you with a needle in your arm. I don't know if he found you a drunk. I don't know if he found you a gossip. I don't know what sin he found you in, but he loved you absolutely unconditionally just as he found you. But he loved you enough not to leave you there, but to change you and give you a new nature. Look at the new nature, because he saved us for a purpose. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, so that in order for the purpose of presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, Jesus saved you so he might give you a new nature. And it's one of holiness. Jesus reconciled to you to himself so that he could take you from hostile to holy, so that he could take you from a foreigner to the things of God to part of the family of God, and from guilty so that he might declare you innocent because of his grace. That was the purpose of his reconciliation, and he's the only one who can do it. There is no other. Let's bring it to some application finally. See, by his death, Christ is the only means of reconciliation for us. We've covered that. When, when Christ reconciles us, he gives us a new nature. That's what it says here. He makes us holy as he is holy. In your new nature, participate in the good work of God. That's what he's now calling us to do. I have given you a new nature. Don't stay in the old ways. Live according to the new nature of holiness that I've given you. See, God originally created us to be stewards in Genesis chapter 1. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created mankind to steward. He said, I give you dominion over all of creation. That dominion was a stewardship let me define steward for you. It's not a word we use often in our culture. To steward something is to care for it knowing it doesn't belong to you. Like if I, if I ask you to come and watch my house when I go on vacation, I'm asking you, take care of this and steward it for me while I am gone because I'm going to come back and it belongs to me. I'm asking you, please don't leave the, the lights on and run my electric bill way up. Use the lights, just steward them well. I'm asking you, don't just run my water bill way up by running the hose all the time. I'm asking you, use water, but steward it well. 
That's what God did with us. He said, this is my creation, all of the earth. Steward it for my glory and my good purpose. That was, that was what God told us to do. Now when we're redeemed by Christ's grace, he's saying, in your new nature, go back to the stewarding for my glory. So steward your relationships with others according to the selflessness and the mercy and the grace that Christ exampled for us. See, Christ showed us that equality with God is not a thing to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself, even to the point of death and death on a cross. So steward your relationships with others in the selfless and the humble and the gracious nature of Christ. Your relationships are a thing to be stewarded. Parents, steward your children's hearts. Your children do not belong to you. Hudson and Paisley do not belong to me. They belong to the Lord, and he has graciously given to them to me for a season that I might steward them and point them to Jesus so that they might understand the glories and the mercies of a Savior who came and died for them and that they might be a redeemed part of his kingdom. Steward your children's hearts well. They don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord. Parent them according to Scripture. Steward your resources, your home, your finances, your time, all of these things according to your new nature in Christ. Those things belong to him, not to you. He's saying, I've given you a new nature. Live according to that new nature, which is a renewed holiness because of Christ. Steward God's creation. Here's an argument for Christian environmentalism. This is God's creation. It belongs to him. We don't get to abuse the earth like it belongs to us. We get to steward it well like it belongs to him. Let's just steward our world well and be good citizens as long as we live in it, knowing that our citizenship is in something greater and in a place that's greater. But this still belongs to him. God is in the business of taking broken things and making them new. God is in the business of restoring creation under the lordship of Christ because he is the rightful Lord over it all. And he's calling you to live according to the spirit of the new kingdom that you now inhabit, according to the new nature that he's given you. Here's the third thing we see. Steadfast hope in the gospel is the substance of your reconciliation with God. Paul makes that argument here in the last couple of verses. Look, look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 23. If indeed, and it sounds like Paul is now making a conditional clause, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul now introduces this conditional clause. You will be presented holy and blameless and righteous before God if indeed you hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Let me give you guys, uh, I, I was reading this this week. Have any of you ever heard of the 1904 Olympic marathon? I get to tell you a wonderfully horrible story. 
Okay, the 1904 Olympics, it was the first year the Olympics had ever been held outside of Europe. They had never trusted America to hold the Olympics before. 1900 year was the first year, and by God's grace, it was almost the last. It was such a disaster. So the 1904 Olympic marathon. I'm quoting from an article Uh, I'll have to look where I got this from again. I don't remember. But the 1904 marathon was less a showstopper than it was a sideshow. It was a freakish spectacle that seemed more in keeping with a carnival than the reverent moods of the games. And the outcome was so scandalous that the event nearly got abolished for good. So imagine this. There are 32 runners who line up to run this first Olympic marathon in the U.S., A few of them were actual marathoners. The majority of them had never run a marathon in their life. And now they're about to try and set out on a 25-mile journey, and it's their first one, and it's the Olympics. Let me tell you about a few of these guys, a few of what they called the oddities. Fred Lortz, he was an American, and he was a bricklayer. But he didn't have time to train during the day, so he just kind of ran once in a while at night. Fred Lortz qualified for the Olympics because he won a five-mile marathon. You can run five miles, I guess. Maybe you can run 25. I doubt it. There were 10 Greek men who showed up who had never run a marathon before. There were two men from the Tsuwana tribe of South Africa. When they got to the starting line, they arrived barefoot to run a 25-mile marathon. There was a Cuban national named Felix Carbajal. Felix had raised money on his postal route in in Cuba uh, to come to America. When he got here, he, like that, lost it all in a dice game and then had to hitchhike over to the starting line uh, from Louisiana to uh, St. Louis, I think it was. When he arrived in St. Louis... He he arrived attired in a white, long-sleeved shirt long, dark pants, a beret, and a pair of street shoes to run a marathon in St. Louis, Missouri in August. So the firing pistol went off. All 32 runners take off. The heat and the humidity were both in the 90s that day for a 24.85-mile run. It wound across roads and over hills, some of which uh, were about 300 feet high, and they had agonizingly long inclines. And here was the course. Those roads were inches deep in dust. They were not on solidly paved roads. In many of the places along these roads, there was cracked stone strewn across those roads, really good for guys in bare feet running a marathon. The roadway uh, had um, men dodging constantly crosstown traffic, delivery trucks, railroad trains, trolley cars, and people walking their dogs. They didn't shut down any of the streets for this thing. It's just like life is going by like normal, and these guys got to try and not get hit by a train while they're running in the Olympics. 90s in the heat and humidity, and there were only two places along the course where they could actually get water to drink. That was because the organizer of the games wanted to test out what athletes who were intentionally dehydrated did. So let's starve them of water in a marathon. 
William Garcia was a runner from California, and he nearly became the first fatality when, running through all of the dust clouds, he coughed so hard he ruptured his esophagus and nearly bled to death internally. uh, John Lorden was another runner. He suffered a bout of vomiting and gave up. Len Tao was one of the South, South African participants. He actually got chased off course over a mile by a pack of wild dogs. Felix Carvajal, he stopped at an orchard along the way, and he snacked on some apples that turned out to be rotten. So he decided in the middle of the marathon, because of his stomach cramps, he was going to lay down and take a nap. It was a spectacle. Sam Miller also experienced severe cramping. He was a runner that slowed to a walk and eventually just stopped. At the nine-mile mark, Fred Lortz, the bricklayer, he also had those stomach cramps. He decided it's not worth it. He hops in a passing car and decides to hitch a ride, and he starts waving at all of the runners and the spectators as he's driving right by them. Decide it's not even worth it. Thomas Hicks, he was one of the few actual trained marathoners in this thing. He had a team that was right alongside him as he was running because he was a marathoner. He was equipped for this thing, you would think. And he begged them for water along the way. His team refused him and instead gave him a concoction of egg whites and strychnine. They fed him rat poison with his egg whites. They thought it was a performance-enhancing drug at that point. Meanwhile, Fred Lortz, after he recovered from his cramps, decided about 11 miles later of riding in this car, I feel better. I'm going to try running again. So he hops out of the car, back onto the track, and keeps running like he's still in the thing. He wound up crossing the finish line as the first one to cross it in just under two hours, and they started cheering. An American won the first American Olympics, and they bring the wreath, and he's just basking in the praise that he just won this thing. They put the wreath on him. They're about to put the gold medal on him before somebody finally hollers out, the dude took a ride in a car. You can't win the marathon in a car. And then he said, oh, haha, I was just joking, but he was just about to accept it. Thomas Hicks was one of the only true marathoners that day, and ultimately he won the race with that strychnine coursing through his veins, and at the end he declared, never in my life have I run such a tough course. (laughs) The 1904 Olympic marathon was a disaster. Y'all, God calls us to run the marathon of the Christian life built on the foundation of Christ. You see, as we run the race of the Christian life, Paul compares it elsewhere in Scripture to running a race. As we run this race, God is calling us to remain steadfast on the right foundation. You see, the Christian life might not have you dodging trains. You might not get chased by a pack of wild dogs because you're a Christian. You probably won't be fed strychnine. If you do get fed strychnine, let's talk because I don't know what kind of Christian walk you're walking. It doesn't have all these things. But you know what the Christian life does have? It has all manner of trials that will test your faith to the brink where you feel like, man, I just don't know that I have the guts to press on anymore. You know what else the Christian life has? 
worldly philosophies all coming at you. You know what? That Jesus thing is good, but let me tell you, it's also this. Let me tell you, you need Jesus, but you also got to do social good. You need Jesus, but it's also about treating people well. Like, you got to have this thing. It's all about worldly philosophies that are assaulting your faith and telling you the gospel of Jesus is not enough. The Christian life has a lot of pitfalls that are going to try and throw you off the marathon track of running your faith well. Of the 32 men who started that race in 1904, only 14 actually finished. One of them finished only because he took a ride in a car. The other finished and nearly died of poisoning from strychnine. What Paul is saying is stand on the gospel of Jesus. This is what he's saying to you and me. Start the Christian journey on the gospel of Christ. Stay with Christ. Finish well with Christ. You start with Jesus. You stay with Jesus, and then you finish with Jesus. Y'all, so many of those athletes in 1904 did not start built on the right foundation. They came barefoot. They came dressed in the wrong clothing. They didn't have the proper training. They didn't have the proper resources like water to even compete. And when the race got underway, their, their, their lack of a foundation was exposed. Y'all, just like for you and me, when all of the trials of this world assault your faith, when the philosophies of this world tell you that the gospel of Jesus can't be the one thing, all of the fluff of the Christian life washes away and your foundation is exposed. That's what's left. Paul is encouraging you, let the foundation of your Christian life be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Start right with the gospel of Jesus. He's the only one in whose salvation is found. He's saying continue in Christ. Christ calls himself living water. And Jesus says this of himself, the one that drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Stay with Christ. Preach the gospel of Jesus to yourself every day along this run of the Christian life. That gospel is what will hold you steadfastly to Jesus. And when you finish the race, Jesus will be the one standing there to greet you at the end. Start with Christ, stay with Christ, and end with Christ. This is the evidence of your salvation. The evidence that you believed at first is that you stay with the gospel and finish with the gospel. This is not a works-based salvation. It's an evidence of your salvation. Saying, don't buy into anything else. So this is what Paul said to us this morning. Jesus is supreme in salvation. He is the only one in whom salvation is found. The fullness of God dwelling in Christ makes the fullness of your reconciliation possible. And the evidence of your salvation is the reconciliation that you acquire when you hold steadfast to his gospel. So if you have placed your faith in Christ and submitted yourself under Jesus as Lord, you who were once an enemy have now been brought near and made a friend. You who were once hostile have been made holy. You have been separated to God for the good purpose of his, his holy work. 
So continue in the faith that you had at first. Don't give in to the philosophies of the world. Don't swerve from the gospel that you believed. Preach it to yourself every day. And drink from the spring of living water that comes from Christ. Start with Christ, continue with Christ, and end with Christ. Let's pray.